0: Okay, y'all, um, here, here's how we're going to begin. Who wants to be a pastor? Show of hands, who wants to be a pastor? Come on, come on, all right, slim, slim, who else, who else? Riley, where are you? Hey, wait, is that my son? My, it's Ty, you want to be a pastor? Well, sweet, man. Titus, was that your hand too? Okay, uh, Riley, where are you? Malcolm, Riley, where are you? All right, Riley, I know you want to be a pastor, don't act like you don't. Okay, anybody else? I'll do it, Jeff. All right, all right, Scott, very good, very good. Uh, Cornelia was raising her hand in the first service. All right, okay, good. Um, After 18 years of researching pastoral trends, Dr. Richard Kreiger says pastors are in a dangerous occupation. It is the single most stressful and frustrating working profession. More than medical doctors, lawyers, and politicians. Their research team put together 18 years of research they built on, and included the Schaefer Institute at Covenant Seminary, which is a large part of our tradition's uh, training of pastors. 70% of pastors—this is here's their statistics. I'm just going to rattle them off. 70% of pastors are so stressed out. 70% are so stressed out, so burned out, they regularly consider leaving the ministry. Riley, you still want to go, brother? 35% of pastors do leave the ministry, and they do within five years. One out of ten pastors actually retire as a pastor. So nine don't. 80% of pastors believe pastoral ministry has negatively affected their families. Many of the children. Any PK kids in here? Other than mine? Okay, Blake, you're a PK kid? Very good. I see them. There was a couple. there's like four or five in the first service. Many children do not attend church now because of what the church has done to their parents. Over 1,500 pastors leave the ministry, have left the ministry every month last year. 4,000 new churches begin every year. 7,000 churches close down every year. Okay, boy, this is a jolly good way to start. In 2005, 2006, this research group went to California and research, surveyed 1,050 pastors at two pastoral conferences. Now, this is not mainline pastors, and the other one included mainline evangelical and reformed and all that go into that pot. Uh, this is strictly evangelical and reformed pastors, self-consciously so. Here's what they found out. 100% of them had one pastor friend, at least one pastor friend, leave the ministry because of burnout, church conflict, or moral failure. 100%. Now, I can tell you, because I work on the, what's called the Ministerial Relations Committee in our denomination in North Texas Presbytery, all the stats that we're looking at bear out in my personal experience of working with pastors or working with churches. Okay? Uh, 90% said they are frequently fatigued on a weekly basis. In other words, they're worn out on a weekly basis. So that, that probably describes a lot of us, right? I don't put much into that. 89%, though, say they have considered, seriously considered leaving the ministry. 89% of pastors today, in our tradition, 77% felt they did not have a good marriage. said they were so poorly trained in seminary to to learn how to lead a church. They were not trained on how to lead a church. They were not trained on how to pastorally connect with people and relate to people and have pastoral care with people. And because they don't, they said that they feel so inadequate that it it creates a greater burden. They just don't know what to do to lead a church. They just don't know how to lead a church. They, They don't know how to counsel people. They don't know how to get into the messiness of people's lives. They feel so ill-equipped that there's always this tension that they're a failure. That's what this stat said. 72% says they only read the Bible and only study the Bible when they prepare their sermon or do a lesson or teach in some capacity. That means that 38% are saying they do not read, or 38% say they do read their Bible, do study their Bible personally just for themselves. 38%. 26% said they are spiritually adequately fed. 26% say, yeah, I feel spiritually fed adequately. I'm getting some spiritual nourishment on a regular basis. 71% said they're burned out right now and suffering from depression. 71%. 30% said they have had in the past an ongoing affair or at least one sexual encounter with a parishioner. 30%. And here's the last but not least. 23%, a whopping 23% said they are happy and content on a regular basis with who they are in Christ, with who they are in their church, and with who they are at home. Who the wants to go into pastoral ministry? Any takers? Perhaps pastoral ministry has simply run its course. Why don't we just say, let's just put it, let's just say it. It's a, it's a dinosaur. It's something from the past. It just lacks the power. It lacks the fruitfulness. It lacks the ability to connect people to God, to connect people to each other, to connect people to meaningful, making a difference in the world. It just doesn't... It's run its course. Why don't we just say that? Perhaps we should say that. Perhaps it's just not effective anymore. It's lost its stuff. I mean, there are things that are just more effective today, like worship music. Worship music's more effective today. It more effectively connects people to God, more effectively connects people to each other, more effectively connects them to some sort of otherworldly encounter. And maybe small groups are, you know, whatever we call them, community groups, life, whatever we call them. Maybe they're more effective at connecting us to God and connecting us to each other, connecting us to life. Or maybe just, maybe ministry activism, just Look, if you want to make a difference in the world, just get out there and do it. Get involved in all the ministry activism that you can be actively engaged in in a material, practical, tangible way. Maybe these ways are just so much more effective, so much more powerful. Maybe, maybe we just need to get a new job. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. All right, so our reading is from 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. So he, that is Elijah, departed from there, that is the cave, and found, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all please be seated. All right, allergies, so I might have to keep drinking my Gatorade. Lord, um, we ask that you would shine on the page. We ask that you would do uh, wonders this morning. We We ask that you would show up, and we ask this in your name, amen. All right, I want you to look at that last phrase in verse 19. You got it? Elijah passed by him, Elisha, and cast his cloak upon him. Do you see that? Uh, Elijah's cloak is symbolic of the prophet's office. Uh, this is an official, this is a settled, this is a determined, God-given role, a God-given call, a God-given office in Israel and the world for the purpose of speaking God's words. So this is not a general call to ministry. We looked at last week, the Great Commission was a general call to ministry. In other words, if you're a Christian, you're called to ministry. If you're a Christian, you're called to be on mission. If you're a Christian, you're called To make disciples, that's a general call. This is a special call. Not that it's special like it's better. It's special in that it's specialized. It's it's not that every God follower, whether you're an Israelite or a Christian, is engaged in mission and is engaged in ministry, is building friendships and having gospel conversations with your kids, with your spouse, with your neighbors, with all these concentric places and spheres of relationships that God has placed you, right? Uh, This is a special call to ministry. Today we call the prophetic ministry pastoral ministry. The prophet's cloak is where we get the tradition of the robe in church history. Why? Because the robe cloaks the person with the word of God. He is cloaked, covered, smothered, and he releases it on the congregation he speaks people back to life again pastoral ministry in its heart in the scriptures believes in magic in other words right? verbal power verbal magic Verbal breakthroughs, verbal intrusions, verbal revelations, verbal showing up of God himself and speaking people back to life again. To cast the cloak upon someone is to call them to be a prophet in the ancient world. So what we're witnessing here is Elisha being called to be a prophet. Elisha being called in a special way to assume a special office to speak people back to life again. We could call it prophetic wizardry. You have Elijah who's Dumbledore, and you have Elisha who's Harry. That's where we're at right now. We're in close encounters. We're in the world of other worlds. We're in this place where the other world presses into this world, and the way it starts pressing into this world is through verbal encounters, through wizards. Okay, so now I know I just lost a lot of you. Because you're saying, listen, I'm not Dumbledore and I'm not Harry. I'm not a pastor and I'm not a prophet. So what I'm going to do for the next 20 minutes is I'm going to get on my phone and I'm going to play Fortnite. That's you, right? I know that's you out there. And I want to say to you, you, that is absolutely fair to think that way. I mean, good night. We are just moving through a passage and this happens to be talking about pastors. And this is not a pastor's conference. And 99% of us are not pastors in this room, so what could we possibly have from this passage? It's for us. Fair question. So all I'm going to say to you is this. I want you to look at verse 19. So when he, Elijah, departed from there and and found Elisha, here's what's happening here. God's plan, when all is lost in the world, when all is lost, In the world, God's plan was to find Elisha. Finding Elisha is God's plan when sin smites you and smothers you. Remember, this is the most... um, This is the first time in 1,300 years of Israel's history that Israel has now officially said, Yahweh, we don't want you. Baal, we want you as our God. Never happened in 1,300 years of history. It happens here. God's response, God's action, God's movement. Find Elisha. Find Elisha is God's plan when they're suffering without relief. Every spigot in Israel has been turned off. People are suffering on massive scales of misery all over the place. For three and a half years, the place is decimated. God's response, God's movement, God's action is, Find Elisha. Finding Elisha is God's plan when God's work seems not to work. We just saw... We just saw perhaps the greatest thing you could ever see in the Old Testament besides the Exodus. We just saw fire come down, consume. We just saw God demonstrate His way in the most powerful way possible. We saw God show up and show that there is no Baal. Baal doesn't send the rain. I send the rain and I send the fire and I didn't send it on you. I sent it on those that represent you, those 12 stones in the pit. I sent it on a Substitute of you, not you. And it failed. There's no national revival here. That's why Elijah's done. And God's response to the apparent failure of his own work, fine. Finding Elisha is God's plan when evil keeps on winning. I mean, Jezebel, she's not stopped. Jezebel just keeps on winning. She's the bump bump, the energizer bunny. Gets worse, she prevails. She's not only not stopped, she's prevailing. She's winning. And when she wins, it means more misery. So you have evil triumphing, misery being more masterful, and God's response, God's movement, And then finally, God's plan to find Elisha is when everything sinks into sorrow and despair. Elijah sinks into a depression. Elijah's burned out in ministry. Elijah quits the ministry. Elijah quits life. And God responds find Elisha. When all is lost. When all is lost. God sends someone to speak us back to life again. I've noticed something over the years, just personally in my own life and professionally as a pastor. I noticed that, you know, Bible reading is good. Personal devotions are good. Prayer is good it's great it's needed it's necessary but there's something magic about the spoken word it speaks us to life again i've noticed that worship music and singing together i mean good night you bring you bring ancient music and modern music together to engage our minds engage our hearts to actually move us that stuff is necessary that stuff is needed that stuff is it's wonderful but there's something of the spoken word it brings us back to life again there's something about small groups there's something about ministry activism loving and serving others doing justice to others there's something about it that's just so needed it's so necessary it's what to be a part of what we do but there's something about the magic of the spoken word. I want you to watch how the magic works. Look at verse 19. Elijah passed him and cast his cloak on him. So Elijah has got his cloak. He's got his cloak. And he walks past Elisha and then he goes, whoosh, he cloaks him. Right there. It, it, it should be a verb. Cloaked. Cloaker. Whatever it is, it needs to be a, a verb. Cloak, well, cloak, cloak's well, him a verb, isn't it? He's my grammar Nazi, so I, I look to Scott. He helps me. This is the same thing as saying Elijah casts the word on him. Elijah throws clothes, smothers Elisha with the word. Do you see that? Now watch what happens. Uh, the result, verse 21. Watch the magic in this text, and here it comes, the result of being cloaked, the result of being clothed, the result of being covered, the result of being smothered by God 's words. He, Elisha, left the oxen and ran after Elijah. What? Who does that? Seriously, who does that? Sounds an awful lot like when Jesus says, "Hey, Matthew, drop your neck, come follow me." OK. Who does that? This is interesting. He's a wealthy landowner. Why? Because he's plowing 12, not one oxen. He's also a pretty fit dude. Probably does crossfit. Because he's handling 12, not one measly oxen. He is a wealthy dude. He is a respected dude. And he leaves it to follow Elisha. This is not, the the message of this text is not to leave farming the message of this text is not leave your career. The message of the text is something has happened when he got smothered that reached down to the f- most foundational, fundamental layer of his being and his identity. That somehow, some way, his identity was no longer being a farmer, being wealthy. His identity, most foundational lever, had something to do with I'm loved by God. He could reenter. He could reenter farming. He could reenter his wealth but he's different. He's completely changed. Verse 21, and, because this is a conjunction, and the result of being cloaked, the result of being covered, the result of being smothered, and he took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them. He sacrificed 12 oxen. You know what that means? That means that the result of being cloaked by God's word is he starts feeling deeply in his bones his own need For grace. He starts feeling deeply in his bones that he's broken and messed up and he can't put his life back together again. He's feeling deep in his bones that he needs God to save him. That's why he sacrifices. That's what a sacrifice means. But keep going here. He boiled their flesh with yokes of oxen and gave it to the people and they... Oh my word it keeps going the result of being cloaked the result of being covered the result of being smothered by God's word is he starts loving people he throws the biggest barbecue in the history of that town invites the whole town invites his neighbors he's loving people he's serving people he's doing justice to people he is he's given himself to people What's going on here? I mean, what's going on? What we're watching right here in the text, we're watching Elisha change on the spot. We're watching Elisha being spoken back to life again and being called to do the same. So of course it ends this way. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Of course he did. What else was he going to do? He's alive now. So, here's the question for you and me from this text. The question is, you know, what we all could apply this is this way. How do you plan on changing? How do you plan on changing? How do you plan on changing when sin smites you and smothers you? How do you plan on changing when wickedness, when evil wins constantly, when you keep getting sinned against constantly, when your day is filled with abuse? How do you plan on surviving how do you plan on changing when your marriage lacks intimacy and love when you seem like how do you plan on changing when you can't seem to make friends you just don't know how to love people you can't find yourself serving people you just are so trapped in yourself you just can't how do you plan on changing when you doubt god when doubts just you don't want them to be there they're just there how do you how do you deal with that how do you deal with the fact that it's so hard to trust God? What do you do in those moments? How do you change? How do you deal with this stuff? What do you do when you sink into sorrow and despair? How? What's your plan of changing? Do you know that Jesus preaches on this passage in Luke? He actually refers to this story of Elisha. Here's what he says. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What? Wait a minute, am I reading that right? Jesus, are you saying that in your kingdom there's no looking back? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Wait, 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 wait. In your kingdom, if I... I put my hand to the plow and I look back. I'm not fit for it. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so let me get this straight. There's no looking back when sin smites me and smothers me. Yep. There's no looking back when I struggle in my marriage. Yep. There's no looking back when I stink at parenting. Yep. There's no looking back when I sink into sorrow and despair. Yeah. There's no looking back when I suffer, when evil strikes against us. Yeah. In fact, person Jeff, Jesus would say, the fact that you're struggling already says you're looking back. kingdom of God requires absolute devotion, perfect devotion. The kingdom of God requires that we never, ever, ever, ever look back. So of course, when Jesus preached this sermon and he had this whole crowd of people around him and he preached this sermon and he said these words, you know what happened? Do you know what amazing thing happened? They all walked away. Every last one of them why? Why did they walk away? Because they knew they could never be devoted enough. They knew they could never put their hand to the plow and not look back. They knew it was absolutely impossible to do what Jesus just said. Do you? Do you know that it's absolutely impossible to do what Jesus just said, or do you think you grab that plow and ride pretty well? These words of Jesus are meant to cause every single person that hears them to walk away. That's what those words are meant to do. And say... I can't do it. That's right. You can't. Now, some of you, because you had an extra hour of sleep, are way ahead of the rest of us. And you're thinking, wait a minute. Elisha did. How did he do it? Come on, Jeff. How did he do it? And here's the answer. He didn't do it. He looked back. Come on, verse 20, and he left the oxen, and he ran after Elijah, and he said, oh, let me kiss my father, let me kiss my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, go back again, dude. What do I have to do with you? Oh, now, see, this is where I get real, I kind of have this like sadistic um, bent in me. And it is this, when I get to passages like this, I'm confessing to you, I can't wait to see what the scholars say. When I get to passages like this that are so perplexing and so confusing and so convoluted and so cloudy and so dark and so you can't figure it out, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see what everybody says about this one. And when you go in and you see it, here's what they say. <laughs> I love to watch scholars scramble. It's the best thing in all the world to do. This is one of those times. is absolutely devoted, they say. Elisha doesn't look back, they say. Await. Oh, Elisha's not absolutely devoted, they say. Oh, but wait, Elisha does look back, they say. Isn't that fun? This passage makes absolutely no sense. No sense. No sense at all. If there is not a better Elisha. When you get to the Bible and you find these places that make absolutely no sense, you come to these places that are so convoluted and so dark and so hazy, and you don't understand them. Like, you know, Abraham, I want you to take your son and sacrifice him. Watch everybody freak out over that one. And Israelites, when you go into Canaan and you see that woman that has her baby, You try to make sense of that one. These passages that are so, you don't understand them, they're absolutely true. They're just not exhaustive. They're absolutely true. They're just not complete. They are waiting for the final and full revelation of God to step into the picture, and everybody goes, Oh, that's what that meant. That's what that means. This passage is begging, it's waiting, (laughs) the tension, the inexplicableness of it is waiting for a better Elisha. It's waiting for someone who does put his hand to the plow and never, ever, ever looks back. Even when sin smites him, even when death smothers him, he hangs on the whole way. He's absolutely devoted. Perfectly devoted, but not for himself, for you. He holds on to the plow and never looks back for those that don't. So, here's what happens when you get cloaked with these words, when you get cloaked. With these words of the gracious love of Jesus, when you get smothered by them, when you get cloaked with them, you know what happens to you? You change. You actually get devoted. You devote back to this devotion to you. You actually learn to hold on to that plow. You actually start learning. You, be, you get taught to how not to look back. These words, when they smother you, these words, when they cover you, these words speak you back to life. When we are cloaked with the words of Jesus is your absolute devotion, Jesus is your never looking back for you in your place because you don't do these things. It's impossible. He did them for you. When that happens, you change. You actually find yourself. You actually start discovering that the most foundational level of your identity is his love for you, and you start pushing out your performance, and you start pushing out what people think of you to define you. You start pushing out the law and its demands, you start actually becoming a secure human being. This is absolutely breathtaking, y'all, because Jesus' absolute devotion for you, Jesus never looking back for you, means that Christianity is not just about being forgiven. It's not just about being forgiven. It's not just about, hey, man, you're set free. You can go. It's also about you're free to come. You're welcome. It's not about you're free. Now you're on your own to make it in the world. Now you're on your own, man. I mean, I'm sorry. You're thrown back on your own efforts to try to make something, anything of yourself. Good luck. Christianity is not about your, just that you're forgiven. It's now about the medals of honor of another are yours. It's now about the righteousness of another It's now about you don't scramble to make something of yourself and to make it in the world. You now have his making it for you. And now you learn to make it. Now you're free to make it. Now you're free to be a rancher and a doctor and a coach and a teacher and a counselor and a rapper. I've always wanted to be a rapper. Just don't have that whatever that is. I wish I did, though. Christianity is Jesus giving you his righteousness. His righteousness. It's the most precious commodity in all the universe, y'all. If we get clothed with that, if we learn how to get clothed with that, if we learn how to get smothered with that, you will actually become yourself and you will actually learn to be devoted. You will actually hold on to the plow. You will throw big barbecues and actually learn to love and serve others. It's the only power that will do it for you. It's magic.